welcome to this podcast. My name is Dr. Tom Hughes, and it's a great pleasure today to be speaking to Dr. Rhys Thomas about his recent review in Practical Neurology entitled Cannabis and Epilepsy. Rhys, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Tom. Very good. Great. So, can you just remind us about the history of the use of cannabis for neurological conditions? Like many of the uh, psychoactive drugs, it has a longer uh, history than one might imagine. And it's possible to draw a reference back to uh, distinguished neurologists such as um, J.R. Reynolds and William Cowers and uh, Irish uh, stalwarts who um, uh, trialed cannabis for treatment of epilepsy as well as other uh, neurological disorders uh, while they were working in an era before uh, the classic anti-epileptic medication. And I think it would have um, maintained uh, a role within the uh, armory of these medicines if it wasn't for the uh, moral panic in the 20th century about what cannabis and cannabis-derived medications might be doing to uh, the minds of young people. And um, could you remind us of the first experience of uh, a physician using cannabis and what made them think that it was beneficial? Well, we've got reports going back into the 19th century uh, from uh, the experiences of William O'Shaughnessy, who worked in the East India Company. Um, and his experimentation, some of it being self-experimentation, led to quite a widespread use and acceptance of cannabis in Victorian England. Um, and at that stage, cannabis was used for a whole range of um, disorders, with epilepsy being one. And then just bringing us right up to 2018, is it right that there is now some class one evidence uh, from randomized controlled trials regarding the cannabis products? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think it's really important when we talk about cannabis products to get the, um, the range of products straight in our mind. There's uh, CBD oil, cannabidiol oil, which is available in Holland and Barrett on the internet or uh, places that sell legal highs such as head shops. Uh, which has a variable quality, variable amount of active ingredient. Um, and these really should be considered to be uh, alternative therapies or arsenal therapies in comparison to the uh, pharmaceutical grade cannabidiol medicine, which has been part of uh, strictly controlled, randomized controlled trials, two of which were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. But they're a world away from the uh, homeopathic remedies that one could pick up on the high street. And it's from these. Uh, really rigorous applications that we get our class one evidence. Uh, in the trials, they uh, use a, a very homogeneous and very limited uh, epilepsy group looking at children and young adults with genetic epilepsies such as Lennox Gastro syndrome and Dravet syndrome. Um, and so, in many ways, they made the trials harder for themselves rather than easier by difficult to recruit, difficult groups to do the studies in because they've got learning disabilities and epilepsy, and yet they have. Um, rigorous evidence from this. Now, could you, or would you please, just remind us about the clinical features of Lennox Gastar syndrome and Drave syndrome, and in particular, how they might present to adult neurologists? Yeah, that's a real challenge, and one thing we'd like to address in a, a future review. So Drave syndrome is one of the more common epileptic encephalopathies it uh, has an early onset, always presents 
in the first year, sometimes in the first six months of life, typically with uh, frequent febrile seizures, some of which can be prolonged, some could be hemiclonic, meaning one arm, one leg, some could be with actually not that much of a fever. And then there's a second stage where there might be multiple seizure types, uh, drug refractory epilepsy and skill loss regression. And then there's a third phase, which is where the adult epileptologist or neurologist might uh, identify their patient with uh, Dravet syndrome. And at this stage, their skill loss might be, they might be nonverbal, they might be losing the ability to walk, they might be losing their bladder control. Um, their EEG is no longer something that's diagnostic. They might, the patient might have retained a fever sensitivity. And in all reality, unless you have both parents in the room with your excellent memory or the pediatric notes in the room, the vast majority of um, Trave diagnoses made in adult practice are with the help of genetic testing because the vast majority have got changes in a sodium channel gene. The Lennox-Gastaut syndrome is slightly different. I, I wasn't entirely accurate when I called it a, a genetic epilepsy before. It's more of a systems epilepsy, a network epilepsy, which could have different causes, some of which are genetic and some of which are structural. And they tend to have um, combinations of spasms when younger, tonic seizures when older. Uh, they could have drop seizures, myoclonus and convulsive seizures. So it wouldn't be unusual for our patients with Lance Gasto to be those who still wear, wear helmets and have frequent seizures in their adult clinic. They're also remarkably vulnerable to having their seizures aggravated by large doses of drugs. So they tend to be quite vulnerable. You tend to know your patients with Lennox Gasto because they're on a knife edge. Now, I can see that the approach of governments to legalising uh, products containing cannabis has been very different. And I think your article provides wonderful detail about that. Could you bring us up to speed about the situation in the United Kingdom currently? So uh, one of the challenges and opportunities about putting together a cutting-edge review is that whatever was accurate when you wrote it may not be accurate when it comes to publication, and that's what's come to pass here. So from November the 1st in the United Kingdom, the Home Office has changed the legal status of cannabis-derived products that have a, a medical purpose, meaning that they're now, um, it's now legal to prescribe them. We don't have a licensed medication for epilepsy available. Uh, Epidiolex, the cannabidiol medication, is likely to be licensed in 2019. But we do have a situation where we could prescribe uh, medications on a named patient basis um, for uh, certain people under certain conditions. So those conditions are if they've tried all other uh, suitable therapy, that you've discussed this with a multidisciplinary team, uh, and that you'd be prescribing within an evidence base. Um, so again, for uh, epilepsy, that would probably be within the license in the United States, people with nerdy onset genetic epilepsy. The next question, which I'm sure will be a concern to us all, is the reported deaths, which I think there were 20 amongst 1,391 people who'd taken cannabis products for epilepsy reported by the FDA. Would you be able to comment on the nature of those deaths? Because I noticed that in the trials there were no deaths with placebo. Yeah, I, I drew reference to those because um, 
I think it's concerning when you look at the predicted side effect profile of the cannabidiol medications. Um, not only um, is there a, a bidirectional uh, interaction with clobazam, which potentiates both drugs, um, but in reality, uh, patients are much more somnolent when they're taking both medications. There was a higher rate of pneumonia in people on the active uh, compound. And I think a combination of hypersalivation, pneumonia, and somnolence might have contributed to uh, what appears to be an increase in deaths. Now, the, the report uh, says that the, many of the deaths were predicted due to underlying disease, and they mentioned Batten's disease and mitochondrial disorders. That said, it is a little unusual to be uh, bringing people in to a drug trial in a palliative um, stage of their uh, disease. Um, uh, and SUDEPs were mentioned in um, cases but not controls. SUDEP, sudden unexpected death and epilepsy. So I think it's certainly a, a signal and it's something we need to be uh, aware of post-licensing registries would be very, very really helpful for drugs such as cannabidiol. There's so much of it in the press. I'm sure we're all ex having the experience of patients coming into clinic and saying, doctor, do you think my epilepsy would be helped by cannabis? Could you give us a feel how you uh, reply to that sort of inquiry in your clinic? I think the first thing to say is not to appear to be exasperated or dismissive. Uh, you may have heard that question before, but it, it probably is a brave and unusual question for the patient to ask of you. So it's worth giving it some time. I um, talk people through cannabis, cannabidiol, and the difference between the artisanal CBD oil and the medication and then talk about the American situation. So currently it is licensed and it is legal to prescribe and is, is prescribable in the United States, but um, the license is for um, the populations that were studied in the trials. So it's for children with early onset genetic epilepsy, is what I say. And I talk about the history of medications um, as they come in. So often they're initially prescribed um, within the license, then over time, we get additional information either by experience or from trial about where they may be used. But I think next year is going to be very interesting because we're going to have a whole series of disappointments in many ways. The first is going to be that the drug um, just can't be licensed quickly enough for the patients in my clinic. They'd like it now. The second is that the license may disappoint them. And I think the third is going to be the efficacy because I think it's going to behave like another anti-epilepsy drug and it's not going to behave like a panacea. One of the most interesting things which is um, quite difficult to uh, understand is exactly how cannabis products work. Can you give us your sort of Desert Island Disc top three mechanisms of how these drugs are working? Well, the, the most important thing to say is that um, it's not clear. It uh, certainly has a range of different uh, mechanisms. Um, and it does not seem to work on the cannabinoid receptors. Um, in, it may have a greater effect on uh, so iron channels, so sodium channels, and voltage-gated uh, calcium channels, which in many ways explains why it may behave much more like a traditional anti-epilepsy drug rather than a uh, transformative game-changing medication. I guess what is interesting to people who uh, work within this field is that both cannabidiol and the hallucinogenic uh, portion of um, cannabis THC 
have got theoretical disease-modifying um, potential. And so by reduction of inflammation, particularly there may well be second or third generation cannabis-derived drugs that could have greater efficacy. And then when it comes to side effects, um, what are the important side effects that we should all be aware of and which, about which we should warn our patients? The first thing to think about is that um, because it's a plant-derived medication rather than a pharmaceutically designed medicine, so it, it fits very much like aspirin or warfarin or those kinds of medications, it's, it's, it's defined by its drug-drug interactions rather than its lack of them. And so the two important ones are the bidirectional relationship with clobazam. It potentiates both, and I think it's going to mean that we're going to end up microdosing clobazam, potentially using the expensive liquid clobazam to reduce the dose. And also there seems to be an important reaction with uh, sodium valproate, which is commonly used for these epilepsies. It certainly increases the liver enzymes in people who are co-prescribed both um, because in the trials people came off the active compound when the liver enzymes shot up. We don't know whether actually this is something you can monitor and it improves over time or whether it is something that's much more clinically relevant. In terms of side effects, broadly is well tolerated with some gastrointestinal uh, side effects being uh, to the fore um, and somnolence is seen in people who co-prescribed uh, other anti-epileptic drugs. But I think this might be something that with clever prescribing we might be able to work around. Well, thank you very much indeed. Are there any uh, sources of information that you'd like to signpost us to? Um, it's important as clinicians, we do keep up to date in this field. The ABN has an excellent position um, statement uh, issued on this, authored by uh, Sanjay Sosodia. We have the uh, British Paediatric Neurology Association who have issued uh, a number of updates on their position with this uh, issue. And um, it's the first time I've really been following the Home Office and their statements on this as well. Licensing is likely to come in for epidolics in 2019. Um, I suspect that the, um, the license for it will be relatively limited and it might even be um, um, available to us through specialised commissioning. Um, but um, 2019 is where we'll see that. Well, thank you very much indeed, Reese. On behalf of Practical Neurology, I'd like to say how enjoyable that was. I feel up to speed, and I'm sure our listeners will feel the same. Thank you very much indeed. That's very kind. It was a real pleasure to be picked for the editor's choice in the December edition of Practical Neurology. A real pleasure to write this with Mark Cunningham, my colleague from uh, Dublin. And thanks once again for the opportunity to uh, speak about this. The article's available online now.